Hello and welcome to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focus podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Danny Crichton, and today we have a special episode for you. Marianne Azevedo and I interviewed Jonathan Metric, the chief growth officer at Portage Ventures, on all things happening in growth this year in 2021. Growth costs are increasing, performance marketers are frustrated, Tiger Global is dumping money on S&M costs all across the industry, and it's never been harder for startups to find cheap ways to get the scale they need to get that next round. Today, we're going to talk about everything from out of home, performance marketing, TikTok, influencers, NFTs, putting urinal ads up or something like that. I don't know. There's so many different ways and creative tools that people are using to grow these days, and we have all that and more the Twitter space we hosted live last night. Take a listen. We're going to be talking about growth marketing today. All kinds of really important subjects, obviously with fintech as a focus. Jonathan, you're up here, but you're muted because Twitter likes to annoy people that way. Jonathan, are you there? I am. Hello, Danny. How are you? Good. We're getting people through this tunnel one by one. And next, we're going to get Marianne set up here in just a second. But in the meantime, I'm going to introduce uh, our speaker today. So Jonathan Metric, is the Chief Growth Officer at Portage Ventures, where he advises a global portfolio of fintech companies, including Wealthsimple in Canada, Albert in the US, and Clark in Germany. Previously, he was the Chief Marketing Officer of Policy Genius, one of the largest insurtech marketplaces, leading a division of 40-plus growth marketers and scaling revenue 10x over three years. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here and excited to be on this uh, new platform. This is my first Twitter Spaces hangout. So I'm excited to see kind of how this goes and great to chat with you two today about growth and fintech. Absolutely. Well, I, I will say it's gone from alpha to beta at this point. It was pretty janky the first few times we did this, maybe two, three months ago. And I think the Android app is now working. And it doesn't crash every five minutes. So hopefully it'll be pretty good. <laughs> Uh, but I just want to get started. When you think about growth in 2021, I, I, to me, growth has been the uber story of the entire year. You know, every company is growing. The marketing channels are getting congested. CAC costs are going up on almost every paid channel. It's more competitive than ever on organic. What are you thinking about these days when it comes to growth in 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head there, right? And I think you know, if we dial it back even a little bit, you know, to the beginning of COVID, I think there was a bit of a pause on you know, oh my goodness, is the sky falling and are we going to be growing at all, right? And I think, you know, a couple months after that in 2020, we saw, you know, an immediate rebound uh, with folks just kind of shifting their attention to online and, you know, direct ways of, of buying products that weren't necessarily in person, but, you know, direct to consumer. And, you know, I think growth really rode that way, right? And when I think of growth, you know, I, I think it's more around folks who are, you know, looking at driving revenue for their business. And that can involve marketing, but that can involve product and tech components, performance marketing. And so I think, you know, growth has really had a moment on the back of COVID because, you know, the digital channels were already growing before COVID, but they've really been amplified with more folks turning online, you know, less folks going and discovering products and services in store and in person. And, you know, the growth marketers are really in a position to be able to take advantage of that, as well as the companies that were able to, to reach consumers digitally during this window. And I think that's just continued on into 2021. And, you know, the other backdrop I think that's active is there's just a lot of capital flowing into fintechs and a lot of the venture space with, you know, big players like Tiger Global, Tencent, splashing a lot of big funding rounds in. So that, you know, a lot of that in the D2C space or the B2C side of things goes into marketing, right? And you'll see that translate into higher CACs and just a lot more demand across the board for growth talent. Fantastic. And I know Marianne is now in the audience. So we've, we've made one step forward. 
Just to introduce her before we keep going, Marianne is our fintech reporter based in Austin, Texas, and covers all things fintech, insurtech, and more. So Jonathan, let me ask you, I mean, one of the things that, that concerns me, though, with all this growth going on is your profession has suddenly become very competitive. There weren't that many growth marketers before. There were some of these boot camps and more folks trying to get trained up. But there has been an explosion of demand for the profession in just the last you know, 12 months you know, post-COVID. How are people trying to find growth marketers today in such a world? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Danny. And I think, you know, you can kind of see that in, in how competitive the nature is for these roles. And, you know, taking a little bit of a step back, you know, the term growth, you know, didn't even really exist as a function, you know, kind of five or 10 years ago. And I think a lot of the tactics were there, but even as its own function wasn't really there. So on the back of COVID, a lot more businesses are reaching out to consumers directly. You know, they used to maybe do it indirectly or through a retailer. And now a lot of them are going direct to consumer. And, you know, they're turning to channels like Facebook and Google, right? And the folks that can deploy marketing budgets in those spaces are performance marketers or growth folks, right? And so everyone's kind of doing the same tactic following COVID. And so the challenge has been, you know, the folks who've been doing performance marketing or digital marketing on Google, Facebook, you know, have only been around for about 10 years, right? And so I think, you know, when I started my career off at Procter & Gamble, the types of marketing we were doing were very much more kind of traditional TV, you know, radio print. And, you know, 10, 15% of our spend was on digital. Now it might be the reverse for a lot of these, you know, definitely startups, but even bigger businesses. So it's challenging because, you know, the folks who've worked in growth, that's only been around for about 10 years, you know, there's not that many of them. And then as you look to someone to lead up your function, if you're looking for a CMO or a head of growth or a head of marketing, with the performance background, you know, you're whittling down your pool of available candidates. So there is definitely a shortage, a lot more demand. And you know, folks are, are going to a variety of ways, right? So there's a lot of headhunters that are in the mix and recruiters who are you know, reaching out to folks on LinkedIn and pulling them out of jobs. Many of these folks are already working and they're getting poached sometimes a year, a year and a half in role to join another another company with a, with a big promotion, right? So there's a lot of poaching going on. The other thing that I'm seeing is, you know, with COVID helping this, folks looking outside of their geographic field, right? So one of our portfolio companies, they're based in Toronto, but they've hired a CMO based in San Francisco, right? And they're a Canadian company, but they're building out growth functions internationally. And so COVID has helped, you know, obviously increase the likelihood that you can do that because folks are remote, but they are looking further afield given the competitive nature of, of growth talent. Hi, Jonathan. It's Marianne Azevedo with TechCrunch. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, Marianne. How are you? Great, great. Great to have you here. I'm wondering, how do you differentiate on growth in sectors where there are so many competitive startups? In terms of kind of the growth tactics that a, that a company would use, or, or what do you mean kind of in specifically? I think both. I mean, uh, both on brand, but also just in terms of channel work. You know, obviously, when you're looking at competitors, they often see the same customers, they want to go after them in the same ways. Let's take student loans as an example. You know, you're going after a student market, people have loans, they're all in their 20s, they go to certain sites. You know, how do you differentiate on the brand perspective and also on the performance side? Yeah, no, great question. The classic challenge, I think, is a lot of folks, for good and for bad, you know, Facebook and Google have grown up as the major channels that folks can turn to for performance marketing. They've gotten, you know, really strong interfaces to allow you to plug and play and target advanced level analytics. The challenge is it's easy to use and everyone can use it, right? So I think increasingly, you know, startups have to look to channels outside of Google and Facebook to really scale. And so I think part of it comes down to really honing your audience, right? And who is it that you are going to be going after 
and that you've got a better right to win with, right? So it, student loans is an example. You know, are you are you just agnostically student loans or are you going after, you know, folks who are just leaving high school or maybe you're looking at refinancing folks who've already graduated and, and are carrying student debt or maybe you're looking at, you know, continuing education folks. Honing in on your audience then allows you to be a little bit more differentiated because if you are going after a younger audience, maybe you're going to be leaning into Snapchat or TikTok. Well, if you're going into a refinancing audience, maybe that's an older set, Instagram, Facebook, or another channel. So I think getting granular on your who and really specific on the target that you've got a great product fit for allows you to be more differentiated in some of the performance channels. Another thing I'm curious about, Apple's made some changes to its privacy settings, and that's restricting ability for mobile advertisers to follow users across their devices. This is obviously presenting challenges for, for marketing teams. Can you discuss that and, and what you think is going to be happening moving forward or what marketing teams need to do in light of these changes? Yeah, great point. I mean, I think this is, you know, one of the interesting things around growth is that the space changes so quickly, right? And so, you know, the playbook that was around, you know, even 18 months ago, pre-COVID is dramatically different. And Apple, for those who are unaware, you know, in April, they released a new version of their operating system that really limited advertisers' ability for the first time to track a lot of consumer browsing behavior on your phone. And so consumers now need to opt in. I don't know if folks on the call have been getting pop-ups saying, are you willing to allow this app to follow your browsing behavior? So most folks, you know, kind of 85% or so are saying no. But, you know, previously that was just opted in by default. So unless you went into the settings, all of your browsing data was shared across your phone to advertisers. And so that allowed apps like the Weather Channel to service an ad to you. And then kind of if you clicked on that ad and you went and bought something, they could, they could feed that information back to their advertisers to, to, from an attribution perspective. So this change has dramatically you know, limited the type of data and the breadth of data that advertisers in the mobile ecosystem, specifically Apple, are able to track. And so as a result of that, you know, it's been a lot harder for brands to attribute some of their performance marketing spend on, on platforms like Google and Facebook, Facebook especially. And I think the other, you know, over the last 10 years, Facebook has created a very big business around, you know, tracking user data and creating lookalike audiences. So it's, you know, if one person's bought your product, can we find a bunch of other users that look like them and target them based on their browsing data? And so this change has, has dramatically, you know, limited performance marketers' ability to attribute in a mobile ecosystem that data that we used to have. So it's a little bit back to kind of the initial days of how people are, you know, trying to fix this or, or tackle this challenge is back to the old days of, of a little bit of growth hacking and testing, right? So you don't have absolute data. Can you, you know, turn on a market and turn it off for a couple of weeks and see what happens? Can you do a geographic holdout. So you run advertising, but you leave a certain state or a certain geography or a certain province out of the ads and see what sort of delta you have in your performance by that area. So it's kind of back to the basics in some manners and respects for folks trying to navigate this latest change from Apple. One thing I'm also curious about is how you're seeing trends as they emerge geographically. I know that sometimes you'll see a trend here in the US and 
other countries or regions will follow. Can you offer any insight as to how that's happening or specific examples? And I know that, like, for example, TikTok and its emergence, it rolled out in advertising markets first, but then, you know, people had to identify the trends and, and go with it. Yeah, that's a great point. And so at Portage Ventures, you know, we, we invest globally in fintech, right? So we have portfolio companies who are in the US, Canada, Mexico, and Western Europe. And, you know, we see this kind of geographic arbitrage all the time, right? And so a great example, as you mentioned, Mary, and it's TikTok, right? And so TikTok really blew up, I think, first in, you know, the US and Canada, and that really fashioned out, you know, there was a lot of inventory, especially during COVID. A lot of people were tuning into TikTok and watching these videos. And for the folks who, who are on TikTok are aware that, you know, oh, I'll just watch for two more minutes. And, you know, suddenly 30 minutes goes by and you're still on the platform. So they had a lot of eyeballs and the costs were quite cheap for advertisers in the early days. And so, you know, that really expanded in the U.S. and businesses further afield. And, you know, one uh, example would be Mexico you know, it, it was difficult for them to get access to that platform. And in, in the early days, you know, because TikTok hadn't built out their, their team as much in, in that geography yet, you know, it was harder for them to access. You might have to buy through an agency. So, you know, there are definitely trends that emerge in the US and then global other geographies can, can hop onto. Another one would be, you know, podcast, where I think, you know, that really blew up, you know, a number of years ago, you know, Policy Genius, we were an early mover on podcast. And, you know, podcasts slowly made its way to other geographies. And I think there's definitely opportunities to look at what is working in a certain market. And especially with some of these earlier stage fintechs or just, you know, tech companies, how are they growing? And if they're doing a large share of advertising on a new platform, you know, if you're in a different geography or country, looking to that and being a first mover when that wave comes to your country is a very good geographic arbitrage opportunity. Well, Jonathan, I mean, you, you know, you were chief marketing officer at Policy Genius. And, and as you know, most sales teams oftentimes are, are regional focused. You have APAC, you have AMIA, you know, you have uh, North America. I'm curious when you think about building a growth marketing team, though, you know, how do you structure it? I mean, are you are you structuring it geographically by type of customer, by channel? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question around how how to structure the team. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll get it back to, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, you know, the marketing teams look very different, right? There was no, you know, Google and, and Facebook weren't a thing. And, you know, the need for advanced level CRM or kind of email marketing and marketing throughout a customer journey you know, that wasn't around. So these functions have spun up and they've had to now sit alongside the traditional marketing function of brand and, you know, creative and public relations and kind of work together, if you will. So I really do think there is a lot of models out there for how are folks structuring their growth teams or marketing teams, right? Is, is it led by someone who's more traditionally brand that has a, a, a stronger background in consumer marketing and consumer research and creative? or is it someone who has a more performance-oriented growth background that's much more technical, much more you know, quantitatively focused, and grew up in the kind of you know, performance marketing world? And I don't think there's one way or the other, right? And I think there's a lot of different models across different organizations of how they're tackling it. And you know, my, my personal take is there's no, there's no one way to grow, but you do have to choose what is the way that you're best at, right? And I think I often look to the founders of these companies, the CEO, you know, what, what are they savvy in and willing to invest behind, right? There are brands, you know, we have, we have one brand within our portfolio, Wellsimple, you know, that they were investing very early on in building a, you know, very strong brand that was consumer focused from the earliest days. 
And you know, one of their co-founders has an amazing ad agency background and helped facilitate that growth in the earliest days. While you know, if you're another company that's very product driven, you know, maybe you're going to be building up more of your product org and more of your kind of technical side of, of growth and you know, flywheels within referrals and your product. So there's no one way to do it, but I think it is important to choose the way that you're going to grow and then double down on it. And when you're looking at that binary, I, I'm, I'm curious because, you know, I, I'm hosting a panel at Disrupt two weeks from now, and we've got three VPs of growth analytics, you know, which is a title that I don't think existed. <laughs> you know, we always talk about, you know, the, the kids of tomorrow will have jobs we, we never had existed, like social media manager and stuff like this. But, you know, they, they run the data engineering and pipelines and the infrastructure to do performance marketing at scale. And I, I was curious when you think about the difference between, you know, brand and performance and a couple of these different archetypes, you know, are there trends you're seeing among how startups are, are growing today? Are, are certain approaches popular or are getting more popular than others? Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely been a big trend around growth and staffing up your team with performance marketers, right? Folks who can, you know, are savvy in the channels, they can track they, they have, you know, very strong quantitative focus. They're strong with marketing attribution and, you know, hands on the channels. And, you know, that was different than 10, 15 years ago where everything was a little bit more brand focused. You know, you were operating more on kind of traditional TV, radio, print channels, right? And so that was the trend more recently, last couple of years beforehand. I think now, you know, it's interesting because as you mentioned earlier, Danny, there's a lot more funding and the, the, the cost of acquisition of the CACs in these channels are going up across the board, right? And so it's very difficult now to differentiate on just growth hacking, right? You're like, oh, I've got the most savvy growth marketer and we're now you know, hacking the best segments in Facebook or Google. That's becoming increasingly difficult. So I am actually seeing a bit more of a, a pendulum swing back to, you, know, you need to be also layering in a bit of a differentiator for yourself. And you know, that could be on the more traditional and brand and creative side of things, because you're not just gonna hack your way to growth. It's a little harder to do that when a lot more people are playing on the same channels and a lot more of your competition are well-funded. One thing that I've, I've been seeing as I interview startups lately is that more and more of them mention that they're acquiring customers through different channels, social media channels, such as Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, um, things going viral, and they're not even, they're, they're not spending any money at all. So I, I find this really intriguing. So just curious as to what your thoughts are about how this emerging, I guess, trend of influencers helping in marketing is, is really impacting growth marketing teams. And how does that compare to like traditional customer acquisition costs? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest changes, which, you know, is heavily influencer driven is TikTok, right? And I think, you know, that's really amplified, you know, Instagram had that in the earliest days, but I think TikTok has really, you know, accelerated that where, you know, you've got these influencers that are creating these audiences, uh, you know, YouTube had it in the earliest days, but I think, you know, as a new way to get in front of, you know, your customer. And I think, you know, with Google and Facebook being very saturated, right, everyone can kind of come on and put an ad on Google search or, you know, put an ad on Instagram. But influencers was was a newer trend. And I think at the end of the day, you know, growth marketers are always looking for that new way to get in front of your audience cheaper. And often that involves finding a new channel or a new approach. And so influencers are, are kind of what that's been for the last little bit. And I think a lot of startups have been using them with large success. And I think for a couple of reasons. So the first 
is you get a little bit more real estate to communicate your ad and your product, right? So a lot of times startups are, they're an unknown brand for their consumer, but also they're many times creating a category that the consumers never bought before or never bought the way before. So you need a little bit more real estate to explain who you are and what you do. Influencers are a great way, you know, they've got a little video, they do a little bit of a spiel, you know, so you've got a little bit more real estate to communicate who you are and what you do. The second piece is they are a trusted source, right? So if these folks are following influencers, you know, they like what they say, maybe they're, you know, I don't know, they're a skateboarder and they also review lifestyle products. They're more likely to accept what they're saying uh, as a trusted source because they like them, they've opted into their audience. So the conversion tends to be a little bit better than just a general ad that you might see, you know, across the internet. So if one of your liked, you know, influencers is recommending something, you might be more into it. The final piece, which I think is really interesting from a growth marketing perspective, is you know the challenge is you've got to constantly refresh your creative, right? And your audiences get real sick really quick of the same ads. When you work with an influencer, you know they're creating the ad for you, right? In a very native way for the platform. So a TikTok influencer is going to create a great ad for TikTok because that's what they do. And if you go to YouTube, the person who's on YouTube will create a great ad for YouTube. That allows you to create a native ad within the context of what audiences are used to seeing in that channel. And you can promote that as your own, as opposed to having your creative team, you know, your graphic designers spinning up stuff that look like ads that you know, a consumer would quickly skip over. Two thoughts on that. It seems like that these avenues are more popular among millennials and Gen Zers. Would you agree with that? And then Secondly, I feel like what I'm hearing from founders is that the actual real value is not so much orchestrated. It's more like this organic, some influencer just happened to mention their product and all of a sudden it went viral. And it feels like maybe that inadvertent marketing can be just as effective, if not more so than a targeted type. What what would you say about that? Yeah. I mean, so on the, on the organic side and going viral, I think, you know, everyone's goal is to try and you know, get in front of an influencer and hopefully they like you and you go viral, right? And, and, and that's always been around since the earliest days, right? Trying to get a celebrity to be seen, you know, carrying your product or endorsing your product in a song, you know, would, would make it go gangbusters and everybody would love that. But I think that's, it's pretty hard to predict that. And if you're a CMO responsible for generating consumer marketing and growth for customers, it's pretty tough to bet on that, right? I'm, I'm just going to hope that that happens. So by and large, folks are using more targeted approaches just because you can't, you know, kind of wish for a viral, viral pickup. So that's on that piece. But I think on the, on the Gen Z piece and whether they're more into influencers, uh, I mean, I think that is the case for certain channels, but, you know, there's a lot of folks that I know that are a little older and, you know, doing home renovations or, you know, new parents, and they're looking to other influencers for guidance on different topics, be it on YouTube, be it on, if you go to Google search and there's lots of bloggers that offer advice on money tips or financing and these sorts of things. Those are still versions of influencers, right? It's just a different channel. And I think, you know, by and large, folks are, are looking for guidance into different areas and topics they're not familiar with. So while I think, you know, when we think of influencers, we often think of TikTok or Instagram. And I think that audience set is definitely younger, by and large. The role for influencers does still exist in categories where consumers are unfamiliar and looking for guidance. And I think that can go up the age spectrum depending on the channel. Well, and I think we've seen this a lot in fintech where, you know, in the FIRE movement, for instance, is financial, I guess it's financial independence, retire early. There are a lot of folks, you know, Mr. Money Mustache and others who've built out huge brands in that space who now are in the financial products business, who do ads, who talk about certain products 
And so even in technical areas like like finance, we're seeing influencers make a huge impact. But but Jonathan, I'm actually curious because on one hand, you have a bunch of independent influencers doing advertising and, and making money that way. But we've also seen the rise, uh, and the, particularly in the last year or two, of own media and the extent to which companies are trying to build out sort of their own media operations, becoming their own influencer and kind of cutting out the middleman, so to speak. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are both about the effectiveness of those strategies and you know, particularly the cost effectiveness of those strategies and, and whether we're going to see more or less of that in the future. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think own media is something that you know, not, not enough brands are doing. And I think especially in fintech, it's a category where you know, consumers are often uninformed or, or they have questions about it because it's complicated, it's expensive, it's probably a pretty nuanced category if you're looking at insurance or banking. And they're, they're looking for information to, to help them make a decision on the product to buy. So an example of that would be SEO or search engine optimization, right? There's a lot of businesses that have built their entire you know, acquisition strategy around SEO, right? And I think of brands like NerdWallet, Credit Karma, TripAdvisor, they've created volumes of information that you can search on Google that organically rank. And how you organically rank on Google is by providing very useful information that when someone clicks on your site, they stay on it, they read it, maybe they share it, and it loads quickly. And you know that is a very strong, cost-effective way to get in front of an audience. If you're ranking in the top few clicks in Google, you, know, you can be getting thousands or millions of clicks for free, right? That normally you'd have to be paying Google to try and access in an ad. So I think owned media is a great way to get in front of your audience in a cost-effective way, generating organic traffic. But the key to building successful owned media is value, right? And you need to really understand what are the questions that consumers are looking for? And let's provide value to them and help them educate them for free. And that is a key piece around it. If you if it feels like an ad, the consumer is pretty savvy. They're going to be like, nope, they're trying to sell me something. This isn't useful. But you know, if you're providing free information upfront, trying to be useful, that I've seen work very well. And at Policy Genius is an example. We had a team of kind of over 20 folks working on SEO, helping build out a lot of content for different types of insurance, what to think about, the, the three things you need to know about life insurance, these sorts of things for consumers, because it was information they needed to know to, to purchase. I'm curious about earned media and, and what your thoughts are on that, like PR, um, obviously as journalists or dealing with PR professionals on a daily basis. And just what do you think, how much attention needs to go to earn media, any particular strategies around it that companies should keep in mind? Yeah. Again, I think you know this gets back to my comment a little earlier around there's no one way to grow, right? And so you can be the most savvy at influencers and that's your, you know, acquisition channel of note. You know, you can be the best at owned media and creating the best free content to to generate organic traffic and you can grow that way. Uh, another way is through earned media, right? And so getting in front of media publications or, or helping, you know, dictate some of the news cycles. And, you know, that's another way to grow. And I think, you know, that's also a great way from backlinking. So if you do end up getting some coverage in press publications and those, those sites link back to your business, that can help elevate your organic ranking on Google, which is very valuable. But I think the key to that approach, again, is, is value, right? And so how can you be providing additional value to the audience that's reading your information, you know, a great example of this might be, you know, an execution that they leaned into unpaid. But, you know, Spotify always does a great, great way of using their own data in a way that's newsworthy and noteworthy. They track, you know, the most popular song or most popular song in a certain city, and they play that back to you. Is there information that you as a tech startup or a fintech startup 
sit on that could be of use to your consumers, to the general market, to the media. And you know, if you have data that is useful and different and providing new perspective and highlighting a trend, those are things that often get picked up. That's a great way to kind of get in the news. You know, there's, there's a startup that works in the retail space and you know, they aggregate a lot of you know, real estate data on market trends for pricing, right? And so lots of consumers who are looking to buy homes want to know the latest and greatest information in their zip code on what are the price changes for real estate. And aggregating out that data, sharing that with the media can make you an authority in the space and is a great way to build trust with new consumers. One of the things about PR, obviously, is, is just the sheer amount of pitches that we get on a daily basis, and especially in the fintech space, it's crazy. I know you mentioned a few a few ideas in terms of pitching, but I would like to just kind of elaborate on that as a reporter. Number one, like really make it a point to show what makes you different, what's unique about your technology, how it stands out, because otherwise, I mean, we're getting pitches about the companies doing the same things all the time. We really kind of need some help understanding what makes a certain company unique or different. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's a great point because it, it gets back to, you know, it's not just the reporters that are feeling that, but so are consumers, right? They are getting inundated with marketing messages claiming new way to banking, new way of insurance, right? Like you have to really work to ensure that, you know, what is it that you are providing that's a value that is different? And if you want to get in the media, that bar is even higher. And you know what? What new value are you bringing into the conversation? And if you're not clear on that, you know the likelihood that you're going to get in front of a reporter is pretty low. And then you know also you know how are you going to stand out for your consumers? Well, and I think what's interesting is just seeing the differentiation in so many different sectors. I mean, I, I used to cover fintech before Marianne got here and covered it 500 times better. But like you know, you look in certain markets like student loans. You look at certain markets like insurance products or loans, and it's incredible how many different companies do the exact same thing. And and the only differentiation that I can see from my perspective here was the brand. And, and so, and ultimately to me, marketing was by far the most important part of these stories. And, and to me, like in some cases, it's actually the best way to move forward when reaching out to journalists is actually talking about, well, here's our growth strategy. Here's actually how we differentiate on this front. Here's actually how we have a better CAC to LTV ratio. Because at least for TechCrunch, that's what our readers actually want to hear anyway. And at the end of the day, if you're just underwriting loans, you're underwriting loans. That piece on the brand side of things is absolutely bang on. And I think the challenge that a lot of these more earlier stage businesses face is, you know, there's a lot of performance channels that are very just direct response. You know, here's an ad, we're 20% off that perform very well. And those are easy to track. But, you know, when you're leaning into brand and creative spend, it's a lot harder to quantify that in your attribution model. So that ends up becoming a bit of a barrier for some of these early stage businesses to lean into it. But Jonathan, let's move on to the article you wrote for, for Extra Crunch. So you did a piece on cohort analysis, which, you know, traditionally has been like one major metric for success. But I feel like it's gotten a lot more sophisticated over the last decade as it's become popularized. What's sort of the latest when it comes to cohort analysis and how are you using it with your portfolio companies at, at Portage Ventures? It's a great question. And I think, you know, it's something that we take a look at. It's a way to help us get a sense of comparing a little bit more apples to apples, some businesses. I mean, there's a lot of, we, work, we operate in fintech, we invest globally, but there's a lot of different types of fintech, right? You know, an insurance carrier selling life insurance is, is pretty different than you know, a banking product where you're receiving revenue every month from, from a consumer, right? So I think cohort analysis, why it's useful for us is, you know, it's helpful to get a sense of forward-looking momentum. And, and you can kind of compare a few variables at a time. 
And so, you know, in the article, we kind of did a little bit of a breakdown on how to, you know, how does cohort analysis work and why is it useful? And, you know, one of the, you know, we, we created an example around a business that, you know, ran a Black Friday promotion and, you know, obviously the, the sales went up, which was great. And so on the surface from kind of like a totals perspective or a monthly perspective, it looked, looked great. But as you dove in using cohort analysis to see how that the consumers that were brought in with that Black Friday promotion performed over time compared to other regular consumers that were not brought in on that promotion, you could see they were less valuable, right? So they generated less revenue, they churned at a higher rate. And so cohort analysis is just a great way when you're a business that's growing very quickly to be able to monitor how different groups of consumers are performing against each other, which is a very useful tactic, especially you know, when you're a business that's scaling rapidly, you may be doubling you know, every six to eight months not watching the data pretty closely for a month or two could be problematic. And so cohort analysis really allows, gives you a tool to see changes more quickly that might be masked with kind of more more uh, rudimentary analysis. You talk about cohort analysis. So traditionally, I mean, in the way that you broke it up in the article, you're talking about, you know, organic versus paid and doing it by channel. But another way to do this is sort of the user persona story, you know, different groups of users that you sort of bring out in your own work. I- I'm curious, how much do you use user personas? How many should you have? You know, do you use that in your cohort analysis as well with your companies? Yeah, you know, user personas are very useful, right? And I think that gets back to, you know, the question that we were saying a little earlier around getting really granular with your who, right? And who is the best audience for you to get in front of given your product, right? And I think one of the areas that's really interesting to overlay with personas is is the question of LTV, right? And the lifetime value that different audiences can bring to your business. And you know what I see time and time again with with a lot of startups is there's a very heavy focus on cost, right? So the cost of acquisition, the CAC, you know, let's bring down the CACs, let's you know bring in as many customers as possible for the cheapest cost, and, and that's a great starting point. And you know that is great because it's you know timely. You can probably track that faster. It does take time to actually see the revenue attached to folks you bring in if there's a conversion, you know, a longer conversion funnel. But the challenge is that's only one part of the equation. And so I think I'm a very big fan of overlaying a revenue component to your personas and saying, okay, great. So what is the most valuable audience for us to not only attract, but to generate growth with? And, you know, not all leads are created equal. It might be that you have a really strong, you know, ability to attract, you know, an older audience, but if they generate half the revenue, that may not be so interesting than trying to do a little bit more legwork to get young family audience that's going to generate a double LTV. So I think I'm a huge fan of using personas, but overlaying data on it, specifically driving for the highest revenue or LTV audience you can find. When you think about spend, how do you think about how much money to spend per channel? I mean, what criteria do you use to decide do you want to spend more through one channel or another? No, that's a, that's a great question, right? And I think you know this also gets back to taking a look at the profitability of channels and, and getting the right data, right? So I think there is no one answer to say, okay, great, Google should be 30% of your spend and Facebook should be 15 and then you know working your way down through there. I think it gets back to, okay, what audience, again, going back to the who, who is the best consumer set for us to get in front of with our product that will generate the most revenue for us? And then what channels can we get, a, get in front of them on most cost-effectively? And so for one business that maybe is targeting an older audience, maybe it's TV and maybe it's linear TV and doing a ton of, you know, very cost-effective media buying and linear television 
and getting in front of them that way. And a lot of startups are leaning into linear television nowadays, which, you know, five years ago, they were all in, you know, Facebook and Google, but now almost all of the, you know, hot startups at the moment have TV commercials, right? So that's, that's one way to do it. You know, another would be, again, if, if you're in a category that's very complicated, where consumers are looking for a lot of information and education, you might want to invest very heavily in SEO, right? And drive a lot of organic traffic. And you know that might just be a better way for you to get in front of your audience from, for cheaper. So I don't think there's necessarily a benchmark of how much you should spend in each channel, but I'm a very big fan of choosing your growth channels deliberately. And so I wouldn't be you know, wanting to kind of peanut butter 10, 15% across all channels. I would want to disproportionately win and invest in certain channels that work best for my audience. And that works because you're specializing in it and you're just, you're going to improve the team's performance on handling that channel. Is that sort of the, the sense there? Absolutely. And so for an example, you know, you know, if you're a jewelry startup, you might have a huge Instagram team creating tons of videos, tons of content, lots of shareable content that's, you know, very visually driven. If you are a fintech company, you, you may not have a strong right to wind on visually compelling creative on Instagram. So you might be leaning into podcast channel or using influencers to help tell your story. And then you have a much bigger play in that area. So I really do, I do think it maps back to the type of business you are. And then again, what sort of audience are you going after and choosing a smart channel for them? And Jonathan, we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I, I do want to talk about the profession of growth marketing. I, I sort of alluded to it a little bit, talking about how competitive it's become and how hard it is to recruit. But on the flip side, for someone who's trying to get into the industry to, to upskill themselves, or even just to progress in their career path, um, how do you usually advise others in your profession to improve their own careers? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there, there's a couple ways. So I think the first is you've got to really be comfortable rolling up your sleeves, right? You know, the space. One of the one of the great things about growth is that it constantly changes, right? Like the playbook that's working right now for performance marketing and growth marketing is different than what it was two years ago. So the great thing around that is if you're someone who's willing to lean in and roll up your sleeves and, and get into the details, very quickly, you can be kind of up to the latest trends of what's working in growth marketing. And so that, you know, if you're willing to lean in, you're willing to, you know, do a little bit of the work, you know, go into the channels, do some of the testing yourself, you can quickly get up to speed with what's the latest and greatest. The flip side of that is, you know, you need to keep on top of it, right? Because the space does continue to change pretty quickly. And, you know, you've got to keep on top of it if you want to stay relevant. So, you know, don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves. Don't be afraid to lean in and, and test something, try something. One of the worst ways to try and get into growth marketing is by saying, oh, I like to think about strategy, but I don't really, you know, ever execute. That's not really, you know, you're not going to learn a lot by just kind of sitting above, you know, 10,000 foot view. You got to be really into the trenches and, you know, seeing what works. Before we wrap up, Jonathan, do you have any last thoughts you'd want to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for me, growth has been such an exciting space to, to be in for, for many of the reasons that we discussed above. It's, it's constantly changing, you know, even what the, you know, growth as a, as a function, growth marketing didn't even exist 10 years ago. And, you know, now we're having, you know, there's entire Twitter spaces, you know, sessions about it, uh, you know, which I think is pretty exciting. So for, for me, I think, you know, it's a space that continues to evolve and one to watch. And I'm excited to see what role will brand continue to play in growth. And I think growth has had its heyday, I think, for the last 10 years or so with, you know, radical expansion of budgets going on to digital marketing channels. You know, it's been great for, for, for marketers to be able to better track the performance of their marketing spend. But I think it'll be very interesting to see how do we weave in 
some of the more kind of traditional brand components in a performance-oriented world. And so for me, that's kind of a space to watch as we you know, see a lot more investment in fintech, a lot more investment from venture capital, and a lot of that money does get spent in marketing. Everything's going to heat up. And Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Lots of great insights, and I really appreciate all the conversation. Jonathan Metric is the Chief Growth Officer at Portage Ventures. Uh, you can read his piece on cohort analysis on Extra Crunch for those who are still sticking around here. You can take 25% off an annual subscription with the code TCGUEST. That is T-C-G-U-E-S-T. Use on the checkout, 25% off annual subscriptions. But Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Great getting a chance to chat with you, Danny and Marianne. And that was a great example of how to use coupon coding as a way to attribute uh, your marketing You're into our conspiracy. You figured it out. Very savvy, folks. You know, kudos to TechCrunch for being on top of that one. 